idea for all this really came from a dream? Yes, it did. Good evening and welcome to Nox Mente. Tonight's guest is Jay Widener. Called by Wire Magazine, an authority on the hermetic and alchemical traditions, Jay is a renowned filmmaker, author, and scholar. Considered to be a modern-day Indiana Jones for his ongoing worldwide quest to find clues to mankind's spiritual destiny by ancient societies and artifacts. His body of work offers great insight into the circumstances that have led to the current global crisis. He's the writer, director of the feature film, The Last Avatar, director of the critically acclaimed documentary, Infinity, The Ultimate Trip, Journey Beyond Death, and the writer-director of the documentary series on the work of Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick's Odyssey and Beyond the Infinite. Jay was featured in the History Channel's documentary, The Lost Book of Nostradamus, and was the associate producer and featured in the History Channel's special, Nostradamus 2012. He was also featured in the documentary Room 237 in Brad Meltzer's Decoded and in Jesse Ventura's Conspiracy Theory, True TV. He is the co-author of Mysteries of the Great Cross of Hendai, Alchemy and the End of Time, published by Destiny Books, and A Monument to the End of Time with Vincent Bridges. In addition, he continues to be a featured guest on popular radio shows such as Nox Mente, Coast to Coast AM, Red Ice, Freeman Fly, Veritas, etc. Jay, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a, it is definitely a great honor to have you on here tonight, Jay. Thank you. Thank you. This is, and, and Jerry, I mean, the, I just want to give a great shout out to Reality Check. What a fantastic show, show. that is. Of course, well, I love, I love Yvonne. So yeah. <laughs> anything she does, I'm going to get on board with. Yeah, it's really surprising how many like very famous people are watching that show. We're not getting like, you know, maybe three to 4,000 per show, at least for now. I think that'll go up. But the quality of the people watching that show is really high. A lot of people you would recognize. Yeah. Oh, I imagine. And it, you're diving deep into stuff that's extremely significant and needs to be uh, talked about and brought to the light. So it's it's always a pleasure to dive into one of those shows. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Everybody uh, if you don't know what we're talking about. We have a Yvonne Palermo and I have a YouTube uh, show called Reality Check, and you should check it out. Definitely. And also, before we get into Noxmonte, I just wanted to say one thing to a, a community member whose mother just passed, and she's having a very hard time. We love you, Vanessa, and the community stands around you. So with that, uh, let's let's dive on in. Give us an idea of of the world you grew up in, in the space I'm looking for is the stuff that sticks out as far back as you can recall. So cartoons, pop culture stuff, the woods, whatever seems to stick out for you. The woods were the most important place of my life. Um, I, was, I grew up in, in, the, in a city, an urban part until I was nine years old and uh, part of, I guess, white flight, you know, back in the 60s. Uh, my parents ran away from the city and just happened to buy a place that was in the middle of nowhere. And <clears throat> I became instantly in love with nature because I'd never really experienced nature much. My dad being you know, working six, seven you know, days a week and really poor and three kids in one bedroom and 
you know, it was, we were really rock bottom poor. And then my dad ran into a little bit of money and we moved out into the country. And then I got to experience nature and that had an absolutely huge effect on me. Um, I was, I was into uh, animations. I was uh, into uh, Disney animations. I really thought that they were amazing. And I liked them for their dreamlike quality. Uh, the reason that I've always been in love with movies is because um, the one, <clears throat> excuse me, the one art form that I believe actually evokes the dream state uh, are, is movies. I don't believe any other art form can achieve that certain state and only a few movies can get there and you know once you've achieved that when the viewer in movies and you've been in a movie that felt just like a dream you spend the rest of your life looking for other movies who could do that same thing and there's not that many so it becomes a very frustrating experience but a good movie is a dream and like any good dream it teaches you something uh, that you can walk away with now i don't really understand dreams and um uh, now, today, there's a kind of a movement to blend reality and dream. I believe that's a little bit of a dangerous movement. I heard a guy recently at the ESETI conference say that imagination is real, too. And as a very imaginative person, yes, imagination is something real, but real things come from imagination. So imagination is there first, and then hard reality comes in after somebody has imagined it but what is imagination you know the same thing is what is a dream one time i had maybe 25 years ago i had a dream and in this dream i i was watching a dixieland band i don't really like dixieland jazz much or anything uh, so i have no idea why it was dixieland but this band had about 29 members in it, and they played about a 45-minute song with solos, and it was the most incredible music I ever heard in my entire life. I mean, unbelievable virtuosity in the musicianship. And when I woke up, I thought, well, where did that come from? I'm a best of a low-rent you know, musician, so I didn't write the music. <clears throat> so who wrote it, and where did it come from, and how did I receive it? And the same thing when you're in a dream and you're in three-dimensional space. Who, who designed that space? Well, you know, who's the architect here? Where's it coming from? And those are the things that most fascinate me about dreams is, is that they, are, they seem so real when you're in the dream that you have to wonder if there isn't a bit of reality there. And then, of course, what does that mean? And um, so that's my big fascination with dreams. I've also had blended realities of um, reality and dream states. When I, was <clears throat> when I was seven years old, my little brother was born. And again, we were really poor living in this urban center. And um, my sister, we had two boys and a girl, and my sister had to sleep in my mom and dad's closet because that was the only available room. And when my brother was born as a baby, he had to go into the closet. And my sister had to move into our room. And so there was three of us in this room for about a year. And soon after my sister moved in, and my sister has like red hair and pale white skin, and 
kind of this kind of classic Celtic weird look to her. And, um, and it couldn't have been more than two or three nights after she entered into our room. Um, I slept in a double bed with my older brother that I woke up <clears throat> in the middle of the night and there were these white translucent humanoid beings, three of them in the room with, with us. And they were all floating around my sister's bed and waving their hands around. And, and I woke up and I stood up, sat up in my bed and I gasped, openly went <gasps> like that. And one of them turned around and looked at me. It was a woman. And she floated over and she touched my head and, and I was instantly paralyzed. And I could still see everything going on, but I couldn't move. And I watched this go on for about 10, 15 minutes. And then they kind of just went went out the window, right? Floated right out the window. And, you know, I sat there for seven years old. So I sat there for probably an hour arguing with myself whether I had just seen something real, whether I had dreamed it. And to this day, I actually believe that I saw something real, but I'm not sure. So um, that had a super profound effect on me. And uh, I've been kind of chasing um, the other ever since I saw those beings in my room with my sister. Uh, and, and, um, and I've, you know, trying to understand this other side, this other world that's just on the other side of us and what it is saying when it tries to communicate to us through meditation or dreams or visions or prophecy and those kinds of things. Your sister didn't remember? She didn't. And but later, when I remembered it and I brought it up with her about 15 years later, uh, she started crying immediately mm. and told me that there were uh, she had been haunted her whole life by these invisible beings. And that one time she was she had fallen over, she had slipped on something and she was falling over and it was going to be a bad fall. And she claims that something stopped her fall at about a 45 degree angle and sat her back up. Well, that's interesting because today I was watching uh, a documentary about Edgar Casey. Apparently, Edgar Casey was laying down in his bed in a trance because he was a sleeping prophet right. and healing people and prophesizing and all this. And like several witnesses said that he went from completely horizontal to vertical, standing up in the bed in like a tenth of a second with no bodily movement, not the arms pushing against the bed like mm. anybody else would do. It just went right up. And uh, they, these people look really sincere. And so, you know, you think about Edgar Casey and what is that about? And he claimed that he could sleep on his school books and he would learn everything in the books. And then he would score straight A's on all of his tests without ever opening up the book. I tried that for years. It didn't work for me. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> how tall did you mention how, how the size of these little beans were? They weren't little. They were, you know, um, I'd say five feet, kind of human size, uh, had human features. Or the woman had really long hair. Um, but again, they were translucent and um, they didn't look menacing at all. They looked like they were going to help her in some way. And <clears throat> I say that because I have a, a friend who is a, um, a triathlete, um, does the, the um, what do you call it, the Ironman thing. Mm -hmm. You swim 100 miles and ride your 300 miles. 
some incredible thing I would never do. And he told me that he one night he was, you know, he noticed that his swim times, he had a swimming pool, and he noticed that his swim times were starting to drop. It was taking him longer to take the lap. And he was getting worried. He told me, I'm worried. I don't know what's going on here. And then he told me that one night he had a dream, and in the dream, these beings, which sounded a little bit similar to what the beings I saw, came in and they opened up his chest. He saw his lungs breathing, and there was a black spot on the lungs. And one of them put the translucent hand over the black spot for a couple seconds and then lifted it up, and it was gone. And they kind of pushed the chest back together. And he woke up, and his swims were back to normal after that. And um, so he was convinced that he was visited by somebody who came in and healed him in the middle of the night. So, I mean, I don't know, you know. Angels. Yeah, something. It's remarkable. And then there's lucid dreaming, right? Well, what is that? I mean, I had a lucid dream once where I was walking around a Macy's apartment, the most amazing Macy's apartment store ever in history. And I was changing the signs. I was changing the prices. I was, you know, I was saying, oh, watch me. I'm going I'm to take those $40 pants and turn them to $9.99. And, and they would instantly turn. The tags would all turn. And, and, you know, and I was like literally in complete control of the beam. And, and, and what is that? You know? and, and so you guys know a lot How more than me. Pardon me? How old were you when you had that Macy's lucid dream? I was probably in my 20s, late 20s. Old enough to buy pants. I, want, I wanted to return to this earlier phase, too. But with these translucent beings, I find this very interesting. I had one that would come through. I, I was in a basement, like a, a root cellar. Uh, and it, I had an interaction with it, though. But it was translucent. Like, it was exactly like what you just described, except for it was small. So I find that interesting, very do you know if your sister's RH negative? Does that run no, in your family? No, but I'm going to find out because she certainly has that look. And now that you think, now that I think about it, because you're making me rethink the whole thing, they were my size, and I was seven years old. I'm yes. thinking of them as yes. large, but they were, <laughs> so they were actually smaller. Because my sister was only five, and yes. they were about the same size as her. Or no, they're a little bit bigger than her. So now that I think about it, yeah, they were not regular. Yes, now that makes sense. And that's in the size range of, I grew up in an Irish house. And so that's about the size range I experienced. And this one was friendly to her. It was my friend. There was no fear there ever. And uh, in fact, I, I wish it would come back. Maybe it does and I don't encounter it. But that, that's a, I think it's the first time I've, I've heard anyone else say that. And yeah, that's interesting because the uh, um, uh, the fee, my mom is Irish and um, her mom is super Irish and they all have this kind of crazy psychic ability yes. to control a room, completely <laughs> control a room and um, look, you're, you shut up, right? And not big women, <laughs> five foot two, five foot three, nothing big about them, but man, were they powerful. Yeah. Oof. Don't underestimate the shorties. <laughs> so um, in this early phase, were you brought up in a, so did you mention you were a Catholic or? Yeah, Catholic, Irish Catholic. My head. Yeah, yeah. Went to church every Was Sunday. It, were you very... every... 
Pardon? Oh, I'm sorry. There is definitely a delay between us. So it, was it okay. devout where you, you just sit every Sunday, Wednesdays, possibly too? Absolutely. My mom went to church every day until the pedophile crisis broke out, and then she never <laughs> went back. And that's something, that's like 50, 60 years she went every day. And we had to go to confession on Saturday, so we were pure on Sunday to take communion. Um, if we didn't sing and say our prayers, we got scolded on the way home as an embarrassment to the family. Um, I, of course, was in complete uh, rebellion. So as soon as I could, I made up the story that I was an early riser. And so I would go, I'm going now going to start going to the seven o'clock mass, knowing full well my parents were going to go until 10, 10 30. So <laughs> I've been out drinking the night before, as pure Irish Catholics do. And um, <laughs> I would go and I'd run up and I'd grab the bulletin. And then I'd go, you know, play with my friends or do some, you know, vandalism or whatever I would do. And then I would run home and say, see, I went to church, right? And so I actually got away with not going to church the last 10 years that I was living with my parents. I, I really couldn't stand it. And, you know, I, I respect Christianity and Catholicism. I think they have a very, um, I think the Catholic mass creates a vibration, which is very interesting with the incense and the music and the High cathedral ceiling, yes, stained glass, yes. and, and that Protestantism doesn't have. And so I was fortunate enough to grow up in an environment where there was like spiritual creativity, and which the Catholics have. And not well, Muslims have it too. In the fact that their their mosques are shaped in crazy geometries, but um, Catholics are the most overt. I think of all religions besides the Hindu, who are definitely the most overt as far as symbols, symbols and music and celebration and, and all of that. They're heathens, they have multiple gods. Yeah. Yeah, the Hindus, are, it is beautiful, the yeah, Hindus. Absolutely, are. really but it is. I, I, I've always been in love with the cap. I wasn't brought up, it, it, they didn't, nothing was pushed on me, so, but I have always been in love with like Midnight Mass. The, right. The, and the the if it's a beautiful choir in a cathedral, the it's amazing and can be very moving in the Latin. Yes, especially in the Latin. You know, Alan Watts, the English philosopher, the Zen philosopher, he said that he grew up in the Anglican Church, and he was thought religion was the most drab experience of all. And then one day, his Catholic friend invited him to mass. And he went and he's like, whoa, you know, this is mind blowing. Right. So he kind of almost converted to Catholicism or <laughs> became a Zen master. Yeah. Well, thankfully, too, I loved him. He was great. Yeah. What, so you said something provocative earlier that I, I want to get just out definitions. So what what makes up reality for you? Well, I mean, my my point of view on reality is more of um, comes from alchemy um, and my study of alchemy, and so it's kind of the opposite of science. Science, you know, seeks to take something and and bust it apart and see what it's made of, and I prefer to look at something and see what it's like around me and what one of the similarities to it. And to understand reality, not by breaking things down to their smallest components, but by do a comparison of reality 
within of objects within reality then that allows me to have the freedom to compare objects that maybe are in that borderline area between realities and then find a way to navigate those other realities um when i was really young not really young 21 um somehow you know i i struck up a friendship with a very 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 wealthy guy who was about 30 years older than me. and he had a huge alchemy library and um he would let me come in and read all of his alchemy books and i don't know if you know about young but alchemy to uh carl young was uh, images from the dream time keep that in mind as i tell you this so <clears throat> Um, I'm in the library one day because I can't take the books out of the library. I have to go to his house to read them. And so I'm at his house. I'm in this big, incredible house. He's got, you know, probably a billion dollars. And um, I'm reading these amazing books from Freemasonic library, secret Freemasonic libraries. And he comes in and he says, um, <clears throat> so, uh, Jay, um, uh, you have any intentions of waking from your dream anytime soon? And I'm like, what? And he says, well, I mean, I'm just asking you, um, you're, you, you, do you even know you're dreaming? I'm like, well, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I'm not dreaming. I'm sitting here with a hard table and books and things. And he said, well, what if I told you you are dreaming? What if I told you the difference between you and me is that I dream too, but I lucid dream my life, where you just dream your life. Guys like me control you because we're in control of the lucid dream, and you're not, and we do everything. Everything we can make sure you never find out that you're in a dream state and that you're in a, in a lost in a dream. And we make movies and we write books and we control you and you're in complete control of uh, you are uh, in complete control and we're the ones in control and the ones in control are the lucid dreamer. And I, and I said, well, that's pretty heavy. And he said, well, you know, this is scientifically testable. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, think of something that you want to be. Uh, don't make it greedy. Don't ask to be rich. Think of an occupation or somebody you want to help or whatever, and, and concentrate on that and see if it comes true. I guarantee it will. <clears throat> so I went home and I said, well, what do I want to do? And I thought, well, I guess what I want to be is like a really good filmmaker. And I, those days, a, a camera cost $180,000 for a film camera, $40,000 for a 16 millimeter camera, uh, an editing set with $30,000, easy for a movieola. That would be a used one, by the way. Uh, lighting was $50,000 for lights. It was impossible, an impossible thing at my stage of my life with my poor family and not having any connections. But Within two years, you know, I was working, making films, uh, meeting people in Hollywood, and, and, and suddenly, through just weird serendipitous things, I suddenly was getting everything I wanted. Now, I never had to be rich. I just asked to be a decent filmmaker, and I ended up being a decent filmmaker. Fortunately, it also made me money, not a lot of money, but enough money to get by. So there's this weird connection, and I think rich people, a lot of rich people are shamans. This guy certainly was. And they're moving reality around. And you, if you don't know what's going on, you just think that they're either the greatest manipulator you've ever met or they're the luckiest person you ever met, not realizing that actually they're in command of the reality. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you another thing, and this is probably going to piss off a lot of people. I'm not saying that I'm for Trump, but Trump's doing the same thing. 
He's messing with our reality. He's making a reality happen, whether you like it or not. And um, and it's fascinating to watch it because I don't think hardly anyone sees it. That are literally our reality is being reshaped right in front of our eyes by a guy who went to Norman Vincent Peale's church when he was growing up. And Norman Vincent Peale teach that you make your own reality. And his uncle has all the Tesla papers. <laughs> she does. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think Trump too. Oh, sorry. sorry, Jerry, go on. I think uh, another big thing with Trump is he has somehow, I don't know if it's just the state of our reality since 2016 or something that Trump's doing or maybe the two together, but he has somehow been able to harness the negative energy thrown at him for his magic, if you will. Yeah, he's a ketoing him. Yes. He's taking, he's taking their, they're a lot stronger than he is, and he's flipping it right back at them. And they haven't figured that part out, which is so interesting because they're very astute people on the other side. They're not dummies, trust me. I've not mm -hmm. met them, and they are, they're, they're, way, they're chess players, they're way ahead of the game. But somehow they are, again, because he's bent reality somehow, and they can't see what's happening. And it's just very interesting. And, um, so it's just another example of one of these yes. mission rich shamans being able to shape reality. Capitalism has allowed certain types to rise to the top, psychopaths, for instance, but also shamans, shamanic types, who had no place maybe in a, in a small village somewhere in Europe, but get to America, man, and you can make your own reality and suddenly you're rich. And that seems like to a, be like one of the stories of America. Like a Steve Jobs type? Yeah, look at look at Steve Jobs. I mean, you talk about making a, a a machine that crafts dreams. I mean, that's what Macintoshes are. They're like dreams. I mean, you once you get into the the colors and the way you're using icons and the way you're navigating around in the computer world, it's very similar to how you walk around in a dream landscape. These... I want to say another thing, too. Uh, a very wise uh, person once told me that when you're um, awake, walking around in the world, you're in a 3D space state and a 1D time space. But when you go to bed and you dream, you are now in a 1D space state and a 3D time space. And that to me is the best explanation for the dream state I've ever heard because I mean, you can literally race across the universe in split seconds. So it's as if it's as if time has become malleable and bendable in the dream state, which is another really weird thing about dream. It, it's all states of lucidity. And so I was wondering, so we, since we've got kind of your base on reality, where, how do you see the, progression in states of lucidity. And this is where I'm going with this, because in our waking life, this apparent reality, we move through these uh, rhythms where we are basically asleep for times, even though we're functioning, and then more lucid. And then, of course, when we get into the deeper esoteric stuff, which is the dreamer loves the dream and controlling the dream through high states of lucidity, which I think is part of the goal, it certainly qualifies as awakening. Uh, that, that holds more meaning. 
So with that said, what are the states of lucidity for you? And we'll start with in the space of a dream. So the baseline, and I come from a Jungian background, been through, been through all that. I think Jung's a brilliant. Yeah. Uh, so with that, we start with basic dreaming, which is just unconscious stuff chattering around the end of the day thoughts, what you need to do. And then you move into different states through uh, the rhythms that the brain's going through into this full state of lucidity. And then in the Victorian period, up into more modern days, a lot of people refer to it as astral projection. But I and I think a, a lot of the modern movement with lucidity now is talking about this on a sliding scale. OBEs are just the highest form of lucidity in modern right. times, I think. Now, this I know the, that's controversial for some people. I think Gordon White seeded us with that concept. No, because I was there with I was there before that. But Gordon White is talks about it, and he's pushing it. So, so Jay, back to you on on what's the spectrum? What's the spectrum for you? What qualifies as a lucid dream? As far as does it go further into an OBE? Is being out of body a separate state the way you see it? Well, I think there's, <clears throat> I think that we have, um, I don't call it the astral body anymore. I call it the plasma body. And I think that what we've made, the big mistake that we've made in modern physics is that we haven't come to grips with the fact that 99% of the universe is actually plasma and then the rest is solid matter. And so we have to say, well, what is plasma? And what I would say, is that we are swimming in a sea of invisible ocean of plasma. And in this ocean of plasma, um, there are bodies that live and breathe and move around in this ocean that we can't see. They're invisible to us. And Unless you're in a space shuttle, then you could film them all day long. Actually, you can. If you put the tether out, you can watch them flying around. Exactly. Right. In fact, I was just looking at that today. Um, and uh, so I think what, like when you leave your body, what they used to call astral travel, which I call uh, plasma body or plasma travel, and that um, umbilical cord holds you, that connects you back to the physical body, that's a, a plasma cord. And it's not, it's not, there's nothing to it except that it's energy and gas. And it, it can travel, you can stretch your, your plasma cord out for a gazillion miles, and it'll never, ever break, uh, because plasma doesn't break. And, of course, this is the key to things like quantum entanglement. So you take a, uh, you take a molecule and you break it in two, and then you, know, you have one molecule of the same thing in Germany, and then you fly the other one to Hawaii, then you tickle it in Hawaii, and it reacts in Germany, right? And everyone said, what is this? So at quantum level, they must be connected. Well, yeah, at the plasma level, there's still that cord binding them together no matter what. You can't see the cord. It's invisible, but it's there. And the same thing with us. We have um, a plasma ball around the Earth, which goes out quite a ways, by the way. And we have a plasma stream that comes down and hits us on the top of the head. 
uh, down into our pineal gland, which is why babies, by the way, have a completely open skull at first. It takes a while to close up because they're not fully developed. And <clears throat> longer download times. This yeah, this plasma stream comes in and we become this plasma and the plasma is the dream state. The dream state and the plasma state are the same state. And so when I have a dream of a Dixieland band with 29 members playing the most astonishing music I've ever heard, I have some kind of weird plasma connection to some event that might be happening across the universe somewhere, for all I know. Anyway, that's how I see the universe, and that is what the lucidity that I see is the recognition that we're actually minority, minority subjects living in a vast plasma environment, then we don't know it. And I believe UFOs are connected to this, and ghosts are connected to this. Psychic ability is connected to this. Um, uh, the, the, uh, Edgar Casey being able to sleep on his books and absorb all the information because there's a plasma field around the information itself. And he was by sleeping, he opening up to that plasma field and collecting that information. Everything that we do from every work of art, every movie, every has its own plasma um, frequency. And you can tune into that if you know what you're doing. And I think that the future, if we don't go totally cyborg, which I hope we don't, I think the future is us learning the techniques to be able to navigate this plasma universe and um, literally be able to communicate with millions and millions of, of creatures and beings that are there that are actually waiting for us to come. And, and what Jerry said is right. When NASA rolled out this electrical wire, I think it was STS-75, if I'm not mistaken, and they rolled out this wire because they wanted to see how much electricity was in space. They found out there's a lot. And what they did is when they rolled this wire up, this tether, all of a sudden, all these light beings started gathering around the wire. I mean, hundreds, hundreds of them coming out of everywhere. And I think that that's these plasma beings. And of course, they're attracted to electricity, uh, which is their, their thriving source. And again, when you see a ghost, uh, what happens? Your hair stands up and you feel cold. What's that? That's a plasma field causing your hair to stand up and causing the room to suddenly get a little bit colder because the electricity is using up all the energy in the room. I, I Yes, I agree. And I, I love that the distinction is made here with the plasmic uh, aspect. And, and when I first encountered spooky action at a distance, nothing rang more true to me. Something felt deep in my core that this had, uh, a, at least for me, a deep meaning in my experience from dream time to waking life. And has certainly, I think it shapes if we're able to control, or I think it was going to say change consciousness at will, it, it, what is that? That's a vibrational shift, right? Yep. And so, and, and how is that vibrational shift enacted through an act of will? And then we just start going backwards from there. How does that work for you in your dreaming experience at this time? Um, you know, I'm going to knock on wood because I don't want to tempt the fates of the universe. But, um, uh, I'm getting really good at uh, making my own reality. Just put it to you that. I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to become egotistical or anything, but after years and years of practice and uh, 
I can get answers from dreams. I can, I can get intuitive responses from the uh, world around me, uh, synchronicities to guide me. And um, I go where they tell me to go. I have no master because there are no masters anymore. So I let synchronicity guide me. And dreams have synchronicities in them too, by the way. Yes, absolutely. For me, if I were to, I say this and it's it's kind of, uh, it's not flippant, but it's, it's it, it holds down the gravity of what I mean when I say this. Synchronicity is God. It, and and I, I mean it, but I don't mean it in the way I think a lot of Christians might expect that to be thought through. So with that said, how how is it that... Okay, so in the trajectory of a synchronistic line of events... How are we able to affect them other than being an awareness of them? Well, God is talking to you through synchronicities. So when you see a synchronicity of any kind, no matter how minute, you must instantly wake up. You must instantly examine the reality around the situation you're in. Ask yourself, why did this just happen? What does it mean? For me, for my future, and, and in this moment, and and I think that you know things like um, you can do tricks. Like tarot is is a forcing synchronicity, you might say. Uh, so is I Ching. It's like a, creating a circumstance where a synchronicity could happen, and so that's why we do those things. And the same thing with um, prophecy and things. Uh, whether what the prophet is saying is true or not, he is by uttering the words, or her by uttering the words, is creating the landscape for the possible um, synchronicities to begin happening and going. And the more we become aware of synchronicities, not only happier we get, because we start making correct decisions almost all the time, um, uh, and there's a little bit of uh, sadness in it too, because you're 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 making your decisions based on synchronicities and, and and deep spiritual values, and you're watching friends and loved ones making the worst decisions that they ever made. And what are you gonna do? Tell them that they're wrong? No, you have to let them make the you know the mistakes. And so you, you, at the same time, even if you know all this stuff, you really can't you really can't help people unless they want to be helped, and most people don't want to be helped. So uh, it becomes like kind of a, in, in like a, uh, people call me a cowboy because I'm always out alone on the prairie, kind of. And uh, I think sometimes that's the only way I can find my way because if I if if I follow other people, then I am not following the synchronicities which are guiding. I'm following other people. Yes. Oh, yes. That's a, a great distinction in there. So with that, how do you see deja vu as a the dejas period, but deja vu in particular, in this idea of awakening and uh, braided into to the synchronistic uh, cloth we're weaving here. Well, one of my uh, oldest friends is uh, the anthropologist and artist Robert Lawler, and he wrote a book called Voices of the First Day about the Aborigines in Australia. He lived with them for two years. Uh, he never learned the female ways because he wasn't allowed into the female part. But he did learn the male ways. And he, he, he learned that the Aborigines believe that 
if you and your lover are going to have a baby, that you must go into the dream time first to construct the baby. And you construct it, what it looks like, what it's going to be like, what its life is going to be like. And all of this is constructed before conception. So they would build the entire dream time up of their baby, or the same thing with the hunt. They would, the men would get together, and again, I don't know what the women were doing, uh, and they would, you know, tomorrow we're going to hunt the kangaroo. And then they would do this entire envisioning of the hunt, how it was going to go, who was going to do it, how they were going to hunt it down, and then they would sleep on it, right? And then they would wake up and... He said that it always happened the way they said it would happen, uh, and that they, the, the dream time was that time that created reality. In other words, there's an entire deja vu in our reality, which creates a thing right before it's created, and we can control it. That's the message of the Aborigines, is that we can actually control it. And, um, and so the Aborigines had the same kind of concepts of the soul and the spirit and the body that the uh, Egyptians had. So the Egyptians broke up uh, uh, our spirit into the Ba, the Ka, and the um, Aku. And the um, Ba is the body that goes back and into the eternal source when you die. The Ka is the physical body that deteriorates in the ground while you are you know, a, a skeleton eventually that will die and go away. And then there's the spirit that flies. And that's the spirit that comes back and reincarnates. And again, this is what these astral, etheric, plasma bodies do. They fly. So the best thing that the Egyptians would use would be a bird to represent these forms and these spirits. And so, again, Christian theology uses them too. The angels have wings. Uh, and... Um, course, Christianity is just a holdover from Egypt anyway. But anyway, I don't want to get into that. So what, what the Aborigines really have taught us is that we can make our own reality way, way ahead of time, and that they were doing that. And uh, this is what prophecy must be. It must be what Nostradamus was. Um, he would go into a dreamlike state, scrying on a bowl of water, and then he would see events 500 years in the future. And uh, so all of this is about this plasma ocean that we live in, in which <clears throat> once you're in the plasma ocean, time, if you astral travel, you'll know what I'm saying, time has no meaning at all, absolutely no meaning. And time is a construct that we made here so we'd meet at the airport and get on the flight at the same time. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything else. And we've fallen into this construct of it and believing that it's real, but it isn't real. And so we have to kind of also shed the, our societal concepts of what time is and because uh, in order to navigate these uh, ways uh, in an easier way. It's, uh, it's, you kind of read my mind there. I was going to lead right into time. And uh, well, so just since we're on time, the idea of time, the construct of time, the tape of time, is it, for me, a lot of times it feels like a tape, like we're being recorded, like it's a movie in its own right. And, uh, it, but it has no more control than we give it. However, that said, with what you said in the beginning earlier about this overlap between 
dreaming and reality. And so then we throw in this concept of within the idea of reality, here we are now, uh, and the gravity of that. The idea of time is the wheel that keeps us turning, keeps this whole thing moving, apparently. Uh, is how flexible is reality really if you get to this point where you can manipulate your personal dream time and construct your reality as as was talked about earlier how flexible is it i personally think it's really flexible i i believe um that people who um are spiritually advanced have changed their reality into what mathematicians would call an orthogonal reality. So you have a straight line, and that's reality. But orthogonal reality is a straight line, and then a leap up, and then a leap down back into that straight line again, and then a leap up, or a leap down, back into that reality again, and a leap up. And so you're frozen in that moment, but you're living this whole world in this one moment that people who are living we used to call them the straight people uh, uh living in this well straight line reality they don't know that you can that's what you're doing in the dream time that's your orthogonal reality you stopped this reality you went up looked around oh let's get a kid like this and let's have make sure it's a girl and let's make sure that she's pretty and smart and then you come back down, you drop back down this reality, you look at each other, you go, okay, we got it figured out, let's go. And then you're back down the line until the next time you need it. And this is what psychedelic experiences are also. Psychedelic experiences is this enforced orthogonal reality. Riding along, everything's fine. Oops, I think I just smoked some DMT. Wham! You're up into orthogonal reality. And what's amazing about DMT is you're only in there for five minutes, but it feels like five hours. So proving that you know, time is not linear thing that we think it is and so i think the magicians shamans uh they know how to freeze reality go into a right and left turn do all their business come back and like superman put on their clark Kent coat say, oh, i'm just a normal person again and go on again until the next time they need to have a break with that reality and every night when we go to bed we have an orthogonal break and we sleep especially we go into rem and so that's kind of how I feel that we, our reality really is. Now, you know, Tim Refat says that what's really going on is that the magician is jumping timelines. Yes. <laughs> especially if you know the weird stuff about Donald Trump and, and in the past and all the books <laughs> written about him 100 years ago. And it's like, what? What about the, the uh, marvelous adventures of Baron Trump? Exactly. Yeah. And then he names his kid Baron, and, and Baron looks just like the drawings from 1905. I know. I know. It's like, what? Yeah, it's like too uncanny. What, what if really? Donald Trump is really a time traveler and was that Baron Trump kid back then? Well, I mean, that's what the book is about. The book is about the, he, he finds a time traveling device where? In Russia. <laughs> right? It's like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. And, um, and then he comes back, and and he and is a and Trump Castle. He has a castle, and it's built right where Trump Tower is right now. It's on Forty Second Street. It's like what? And then you know, is Trump just you know he knows this? He's playing a big joke on all of us. Could be. Maybe. I mean, he's yeah. certainly a joker. 
So yeah, um, that's the best quality. A, a jester. <laughs> we have a jester as our king. <laughs> <laughs> Royal Arch. Uh, yeah, but he's a smart one. So. It, well, he I think. There's always a start. I share I share your opinion on this, Jay. I think that the people that are experiencing are. I think people need to look deeper into this, but also this is getting fueled and he's using that fuel as well with all this uh, agitation as any good magician would. Yeah. You know, Marion Williamson, who I actually know, she was on the stage in the debate last night and she was like, her interpretation wasn't totally correct, but she was close there. He is harvesting a, a, a deep psychic force in this country. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, the dark, dark psychic force, you said. Yeah, I don't know if it's a dark psychic force, but it's a psychic force and it's powerful. I, I well, agree. I was saying qualifying that, it, yeah. yeah. She qualified yeah. it as dark against the Democrats when, in fact, it's whatever. It's inverted, of course, like everything I, I else. Spent, I spent uh, 40 minutes with her one time alone having a beer with her. She was actually really very interesting person. I mean it. She seems interesting. If she loses or when she drops out, whatever, I'll definitely invite her on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I, would. I would. Uh so I, I wanna dive back into this that I loved I loved how you pointed this out. The straight line, straight people. It's always how I've seen it. I've it, i do not know if that was ever meant, but it certainly should be. And especially with the vernac the the verbiage of the 60s especially when that was right the comment you know like she likes to go or that person's so straight that kind of stuff i love the circle though so if we circle this the line and we have a zero point yeah uh and then we're talking about that in terms of consciousness and where we're weaving in dream time and apparent reality time and we start weaving in the ideas of uh, causality and beginning and end back to this circle point, back to this singular point. Uh, the idea of nowness comes in, and and we lose sight of everything except for immortality at that point, because at that point when we've circled. The line is a circle. There's no death or rebirth. It's the same thing. Right. <laughs> it's it's the same point. Yes. And uh, so, with this said, and that is kind of the setup for this. What? So when you in dreaming, when you experience the others, and the others can take on many guises here. The others, and I'm looking in specific right now. I'd like to get into maybe some of the more woo-woo but others that have passed woo-woo like is my favorite but others <laughs> that have passed that you personally know um have you encountered the the dead from your reality in dream time oh yeah absolutely i've had dead relatives that come to me and talk to me in my dreams and all sorts of things i had my grandmother came to me when i was young after she died and uh actually explained my whole future to me um, oh and, wow! Can you give us a little taste of that? Well, she was like like a um, a saint, closest thing to a, a person that would be a saint. 
and she was Catholic, super devout. Whoa. And, and um, she came into my room. About, she died when I was maybe 12. So she came into my room and I thought I was awake, but I couldn't figure out why I would, she would be there because I knew she was dead. And then she told me that, you know, to, <clears throat> to take it easy and to not get excited. Everything's going to go the way I want it to go. There's going to be a lot of trouble and a lot of people are going to be really jealous of you. And you just have to like it, learn to live with it because jealousy is part of where you're going. And uh, never get envious of people. It doesn't do you any good. And I never was ever envious. And I took the, jeal the jealous people around me in stride and pretty much never. And it was all because of that dream that I had. And so it helped me in a lot of ways. Again, I don't know if it was real or it was just me psychologically helping myself or what. But um, <clears throat> I've had a number of those, actually. I had a... Um, I had a, um, a psychedelic experience alone one time, accidentally, actually. Um, I, took, um, I took some mushrooms that I thought were regular mushrooms, and I cooked them into my pasta while I was camping. <laughs> and it was way too many because uh, I like mushrooms. And uh, about an hour after I ate the pasta, I was out in the middle of the woods all alone. I was uh, 30 years old. and um, I began coming on, and I really got scared because I thought I was having a bout of schizophrenia or something. And then, of course, I realized about a half hour into it that I'd eat the wrong mushroom. But what happened to me was is that I wandered around this forest completely alone, lost, and really, really stoned. And um, I stumbled into this like weird little circle of stones that I found. I was never able to find it again, by the way. I went back and tried to find it. And as I stumbled into this little circle of stones, um, like this exterior voice began talking to me. And, um, <clears throat> and it said, um, you're a white blood cell inside a cancer. I went, oh, what? And, he, and this voice said, you will, you'll understand what I mean um, because you're about to, um, you're about to re live an entirely different life than the one you're living. And um, I was a screenwriter in Hollywood, doing very fine, thank you very much. And um, and uh, uh, then it began showing me. It said, "You're going to be, you're going to work for a big media company, and this media company is going to change the world." And I went, "Really?" And I and he said, "Yes." And so you know, from that point on, a, a series of weird and synchronicity, a synchronicity events happened in that. Um, a few years later, I moved from Los Angeles up to the uh, Seattle area, and the first day that I was in Seattle, I wanted to check the radio station to see if there was any cool stations, and I found this one station, and it was an interview show, you know, NPR station, and I recognized the voice of the guy uh, interviewing as being you know, a very distinctive voice, being a guy who had backed a film of mine 10 years earlier. Right. And so I called him up. And I looked up the station. I called him up. He went out to lunch and he offers me a job on the radio show. And I'm thinking, oh, this is it. This is the big media thing I'm supposed to say yes to. So I know nothing about radio. I know nothing about any of this. I'm, I'm a screenwriter. I go, okay, I'll do it. So the next thing I know, I'm running this six hour a week radio show interviewing like Terrence McKenna, Noam Chomsky, and all these big wigs. And I'm like, holy smokes, how did I get here? Right. And then, you know, a series of synchronicity happened. And then pretty soon 
I, you know, I'm running all the programming at the Gaia network. And so, uh, again, I'm saying yes to every single thing that's happening to me. Everybody's like, do you want to do this? Yes. Thinking this must be what those voices told me all those years ago. I must be saying yes to, but it wasn't. It was always this other yes. And so I just kept saying yes all the way until, you know, I found myself creating this big, huge network of which I probably wasn't even qualified to do, but there was nobody else qualified to do it. So I found myself again in this weird situation. So again, you know, it's taking advantage of what you learned during those transcendent experiences and then riding with it and having the faith to know that that experience was real enough that you need to pay attention to. That's a, a fantastic example, JG's. Wow. And I love I love how you brought in the uh the psychedelics because they they are also a portal, especially when used uh when allowed to be. We allow it, right? Yeah, when you allow them to control the situation, not you. Yes. If you try to control it, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. And yeah. that's where the snaps happen, I find. That's where I, we can enter into that schizophrenic feeling. You can. And what I, is call a, I call it a feeling because I think we have the power over that ultimately. Yeah, we do. I agree. Uh, again, what is schizophrenia? I mean, have you ever read any uh, books by schizophrenics? I mean, they're they're going orthogonal all the time. They're tapped right? in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, going, they're they're in their room going orthogonal. You know, <laughs> eighty nine minutes out of ninety, they're going you know into other places. Yeah, they're totally tapped in. I I've known a few, and and th- there was a time on on psychedelics, and when I lived in San Francisco in the eighties, where I just I snapped, and it was it uh, as I analyzed it years later, it was really about letting go of control. I couldn't let go, and the more I was fighting it with the psychedelics I was on, the worse it actually got. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, you know, I had a terrible. Terrible experience, and then days of hiding under a bed. Yes, <laughs> I love that you cook those mushrooms, though. That's hilarious. Well, Terrence McKenna used to say, um, "If you're not afraid, don't do it." Yeah, absolutely. Where there's fear, there's power. That old sure. thing always has weight. Yeah. So, okay, so with with the ones that you know that have passed in dreams. Were you ever, did you ever get any precog dreams before someone passed? Uh, yeah, yeah, I had my mom, I did definitely had a dream about her passing before she died. And I've also had ones about people that are still alive. I don't want to bring it up because I might jinx it. And I don't want them to die the way that yeah. the dreams said they would die, but very close people to me. So, um, yeah. You know, when you have these dreams, you get a little bit wary of it because you don't know. Doesn't never tell you when. Just says what. So, yeah, yeah, that's the thing, and that's just some of the trickery in this world we inhabit is this whole idea of time again, and yep. everyone wanting a win, a date, and you know that's a web. <laughs> You're never going to get the date. <laughs> Sorry. You- <laughs> Do you mind sharing the one with your mom, though? The dream, that, what you remember of it? Yeah, I, I was in my house. I was living in at the time, which was in California. And I was walking, and it was nighttime. And I walked through the living room, 
and there was my mom in a coffin, like she was in a funeral home. And, um, and, uh, and I knew right then and there that, you know, there was something wrong and she was dead within nine months. Oh, wow. Did you, did you tell her or did you keep that to yourself? No. In fact, it was so funny because, you know, I consider myself, uh, one of the reasons I made my film infinity, the, uh, uh, um, the ultimate trip was yes. that, um, when my mom was dying, I thought, you know, I'm this really spiritually advanced guy and I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tell her what she's not to worry. Everything's going to be fine. And then I walked in and of course she's a quivering mass, you know, Catholic, totally terrified that she gets to pay penance for whatever stupid sins that she did. And I realized I couldn't say anything. I just, <laughs> right. So then I, and later I was talking to my good friend, Alberto Violdo, and he had just gone through with his dad. And I said, man, we got to make a film that we can show these people because we can't say it, even though we want to say it, it's too hard to say. And so that's the reason I made the film was to make that transition um, much easier. And when my dad died, I gave the film to him and he was almost in tears by the end of it, thanking me that it really was helping him. So it's a film I highly recommend if your loved one is dying and you want them to transition a little bit easier. This is the power of art, and art transcends everything, in my opinion. It's the symbolic Great. language. As you came in earlier with movies, it's the dream language. And, it and if done right, we suspend disbelief. And what happens when we do that? Magic. That's right. That's right. That's when the imagination clicks in. And a good movie will release those imaginary aspects within you and make you think of things that you've never thought of. And the, and the way that a good movie does it is just exactly through the techniques you're describing. So you take a movie like, um, like The Matrix. The Matrix is teaching you Gnostic theology, essentially. You're living in a fake world, and, and you're not even who you think you are. But how do you convey these difficult philosophical concepts you know, and get it into people's heads? Well, whatever you want to say about those filmmakers, they did it in The Matrix. And what they did was they created such a dream landscape that you let down all of your psyche because you let it in. By the 10 minutes into the movie, you were completely into the dream that the, the I guess they're not brothers anymore, the sisters were making and um, uh, the, of the Wachowskis. I'll call them the Wachowskis. And... Um, and then after they fertile, after they made your brain fertile through using this dreamscape language and music, by the way, um, then they brought in Morpheus and he teaches you these high-end concepts in a way that's visual, dreamlike, so you really get it, right? And I think this is actually the best way to learn something. Is through a, if I was going to create a, a school or a curriculum I would teach all of the subjects in a dreamlike manner. Um, there's this great Disney cartoon called Donald Duck in Mathematic Land. And Donald Duck gets caught up in this animation and he's learning advanced geometry and advanced algebra. And it's all visual. They're showing you the panels at Notre Dame, how they make the five symbols. And they're showing you the pyramids and how they're creating, you know, the. Uh, um, all these different angles and things, and they're doing it in a 15-minute cartoon. And by the time you're you're over, and they don't even 
play this cartoon anymore, probably because of what effect it had. You want to go out and learn mathematics, right? You're like, this is the coolest stuff in the world. And so Disney was able to make mathematics cool, and then they dumped the cartoon, and you can't even find it anymore. I tried to buy it for Gaia. It was, they, they said we got to pay like $350,000 for a 15-minute cartoon, but we didn't get it. But it's like they're hiding it. Like Disney did this one piece of magic, and then they, they hid it because they don't want us to know how to make this kind of magic. And filmmakers seem to be losing this ability. Films don't have that ability as much as they used to. Um, but I don't know. Maybe they do. Turn off my phone here. It sounds like my, it sounds exactly like my phone. I don't have an iPhone. <laughs> it was right to my left. I'm like, what? I keep looking at my phone going. It's over now. I got it turned off. What the hell's going on? So it's all good. This is this is very important that you brought in the soundtrack too. But there's so much to say about Disney. You know this. You know this. I mean, what a wizard he was. And uh, I mean, there's just a million rabbit holes to go down to, including post, you know, when they take his head off and cryopreserve it. Uh, All of that. It's just juicy fodder. However, I wanted to get into the idea of now mixing imagery. And so this ties in, this ties into all this into reality, into dreams, uh, into imagination. So mixing frequency via sound and imagery, which is which is what you have, you know, when I think of you, this is what I, I think about is definitely your films. And uh, so this is this is an art you are well familiar with. And I'm wondering how how has the dream experience informed your telling or weaving of these kinds of narratives, these stories to affect others in the outer world? Uh, well, you know, first I was just making terrible films in Hollywood, uh, not really considering uh, the larger artistic and spiritual ramifications of art. But, you know, later, after my, I was 35 or so, and I began. Uh, going into this other journey of uh, more of a spiritual journey, I began thinking about film as an initiation process. I can't I've turned this thing off like four times. Hang on one second. Turn, it's funny. <laughs> Never going to bother me again. It's being it's pinging us because we're on to something. <laughs> yep, it's not really bothering me. Um, so oh, anyway, okay. oh wait, back to reality, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I turned it off. Um, Airplane mode. Uh, so, uh, so then I began kind of wondering, you know, if films could create a shamanic experience, and it had a, you had all the tools, right? The flickering lights and the and the music and the darkness because you're in a dark room, uh, looking at a, at a bright light. And so then I reasoned that yeah, it was possible, and I realized that's of course with Stanley Kubrick had done in 2001 A Space Odyssey, and probably um, there are other films. Uh, the Fountain um, is a film that has this kind of transcendent dreamlike quality. Again, yeah. The Matrix, Dark City, another interesting dreamlike film. And um, so then I began, you know, when I when I got a chance to make a film, because they were expensive, so are, 
that's what I tried to do. So we started out with um, 2012, The Odyssey, which was exploring, you know, the year 2012. This was, I think, 20, 2005, the film came out. Talking about all the prophecies and everything, we took this, like, really dreamlike kind of take on the whole thing, and uh, that film did really well. So then I thought, well, this actually does kind of work. And then I did it again in Infinity, and then I did it again in my film with the Gnostic philosopher John Lash, uh, Sophia returning. And then by the time I got to, uh, and a little bit in the Kubrick films, but less, they were more documentary oriented. Uh, but by the time I got to The Last Avatar, you know, I, I, I thought I had achieved a pretty close sense of how to do this. And so in The Last Avatar, I literally tried to initiate the audience in the last 20 minutes of the movie uh, into a larger reality. And uh, it had, not not as massive as an effect as I thought it might have, but it did get me the job at Gaia, in which I was able to do it almost on a daily basis. So again, if I hadn't done one thing, I wouldn't have got the other thing. I wouldn't have got the other thing. If I hadn't called up the guy at the radio station, I wouldn't have met all these famous people. I wouldn't have got the job. wouldn't have got the gigs. So, you know, you have to kind of live your life in an affirmative way, I guess, would be my philosophy. We, okay, and so I, I wanted to touch, I just want to put this out there and maybe we'll touch on it later. The power of words with all this and the vibrational rate in which they uh, they encompass. So the you are definitely coming at us with the power of yes and following the synchronicities. And that's going to be, that's important. I want to, I want to follow up on that later, but before we get too far away. Is that important? coming up yes yeah, okay. but before we get too far away from the others in the dreamscape so since we've talked about others that you knew in this reality the dead that are now the dead that become the ancestors what about the woo hat the others as in not us as a species oh yeah i'd say most definitely I'd say we're a minority. Yes. <laughs> I would say we're surrounded by beings that aren't anything like us. Um, a minority in our own holodeck. That's kind of shitty. We are. We are. There's literally trillions of beings that you can't see, all, or maybe quadrillions of beings all around us that we can't see, going out for thousands of miles out into space and um, down into the ground, too, by the way. And... Um, and they're, they're intelligent, they have sentience, and some don't care about us, just like animals in the forest. Some don't care about us at all, some are somewhat interested in us, and some wanna eat us. So, um, you know, you just have to uh, learn how to navigate, but if you don't even know that this is going on, then you, you are going to be under the will of this entire dark, not dark, invisible universe that um, you can't see. And so people, that are psychic, like Edgar Casey or or Ledbetter or Annie Besant or Madame Blavatsky or Manly Hall or any of the great people that really started the whole New Age movement. What they all possessed was this ability to see auras, the plasma field. I don't know if their eyes have a special quality. I don't know. I can't see them unless I'm stoned on rooms, but I know people that can see them and they're usually right. 
And it, it, again, they, it's a, both a visual thing that they can see and a feeling that they have inside together. But the, the great teacher, Barbara Brennan, I don't know if you're familiar with her great books, but she teaches you actually how to use this etheric body and how to protect yourself from people and how to um, connect with people so that, you know, you're, you, you meet someone, you want to uh, make a connection with them. She actually describes physical exercises for how to transmute your light body and that plasma field that enters into another person's plasma field and makes them feel comfortable with you. And again, you can do it across television lines, and uh, uh, it's the reason that and the internet or internet. It's the reason why dowsers can they're looking for that lost kid, and they get a map of where the kid was, and they put their dowsing rod over the map, and they say he's right there, right? And they go look, and that's where the kid is. That's because there's a plasma field for where the kid and the landscape is coming in through the map, and the crystal and the dowsing thing is is feeling this slight enhanced electromagnetic vibration from the event, from the situation. And so understanding this landscape is actually, to me, the most important thing that I can do uh, to convey to other people. Because I think people that are um, more talented than me, that can actually see into these other landscapes uh, without the use of psychedelics or you know, um, maybe that I can create a map that they can use to bring back more information that we need about these other worlds and these other beings and, and what, what they're doing and everything. And you say the word, <clears throat> well, the word is this vibration. And um, we from ancient Tibet that they could levitate stones through um, uh, 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 chanting and through horns and things. So this build, relationship between this plasma. Too, right? yeah, yeah. Exactly. The plasma, I believe that they were levitating those stones using plasma. Frankly, that's what I think that was, was happening. And I think that if you, could, if you create enough uh, certain frequency noise using those big horns in Tibet, you create a, a literally a plasma field that raises that rock and changes the uh, gravitational pull within the field uh, and that's what plasma does. And this is what caused Edgar Cayce to suddenly stand up uh, instantly in his bed. It was the plasma forces that were pushing him. And these plasma forces are benign or malevolent, depending on, on the forces themselves and depending on you. You can attract in some mighty malicious uh, forces uh, if you want, um, or you can bring in uh, 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 nice ones, beneficial ones. and. So, and it's your choice, unless you just live on that flat line and you don't ever make any decisions about your own destiny. Where does the plasma end and the ether start? The same thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Plasma more scientific. Okay. So with that, with that though, what about so like in in terms of like the double split experiment, like the observation of yeah, something? Right. So what that is, is that um, it, it depends on your point of view, right? If you're looking at it in one way, it's a particle. If you're looking at it another way, it's a wave. But what is a particle? A particle is when two plasma beams cross each other and create that center place. That's all a particle is, okay? So all particles are, are cross-hatching cross plasma 
uh, energy waves. That's what your flesh, your uh, solid table, everything is, is uh, that's what solidity is. It's the building up of plasma until it appears to be uh, solid. And there's a great book, I'm going to forget the name of it because it's really complicated, by this Iranian scientist named Kesh. Yeah, Keshe. Yep. Yeah, and he has he's got the entire theory. The he, he, has, he says that you can be theoretically, you could create like a flat field in like a, a square box and type in the frequency for steak, hit it, and a steak will appear because the plasma beams literally create the frequencies that, that create a steak. So just like those things in Star Trek, right? And he says these, this is actually real. And um, and now that I understand the physics a lot better after reading his book, um, I think they might be real. Uh, yeah, he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I yeah. oh, I'd love to talk to him. Uh, yeah. so with that, with that though, Jay, and this kind of within as within, so without dreaming, waking, we're creating from if we're looking at it as a line from both ends and bring it together to that zero point, what Kesha says, I call it, Ke I call him Kesha in the interviews that I've heard. That's how I've heard his name, but maybe it's Keshi. And uh, how, how does that alter the idea then of reality? Because you came in earlier saying, nice. talking about the Iseti people saying, this is all a dream. Well, I mean, it's all a dream until you're standing in front of that semi truck as he's bearing down on you. <laughs> no, right, right, right. We know that if you cut yourself, you're going to bleed and it's going to hurt and all right. this. So that's like the gravity. That's like the democratic idea. There, well, there's a lot of gravity here. Well, it's the particle. When you're the person on the road and you didn't see the semi truck coming at you, you're now that particle, not the wave. Right. But when it hits you at 80 miles an hour, then you become a wave. So, um, yes. <laughs> there so is reality, then there's <laughs> and you have to be cognizant of this physical reality so you can live a while and that so you can live a long time to figure these things out. That's what the alchemists, why they were always pursuing the elixir of life, not to be immortal, but to live a long time so they'd have time to figure everything out before yes. they die. Because the philosophy of alchemy, which is very similar to Hinduism is that you do not get out of this chain of reincarnation until you've learned everything in this reality. Mm -hmm. and so this life that I'm living now has been me attempting to understand everything I can about reality, right? So that I cannot come back again, to be honest with you. Yeah. Don't yeah. think I'm going to make it. <laughs> Hence, hashtag transmutation. I'm done. Exactly. <laughs> I'm done too. So, okay. Uh, the, yeah, and this is that's always a stumbling block when we enter into these kinds of uh, dialogues with each other. Is right, it's the you know, this is real, you can't hurt yourself. Although it, it feels that way when you're having a lucid dream, too, like the stakes feel really real. So, yeah. and so, in terms of on, on your show, Reality Check with Yvonne. You had mentioned dealing with this current state of ill at ease, right? Right. And so how do you see that playing into this whole 
narrative or stories that we're uh, weaving together here? Well, you remember when I told you earlier that the rich guy told me that there's a bunch of people who actually understand this reality and are weaving it for us? Yes. Well, I think that the intelligence agencies know this. And so whenever we in the, out here in the world start getting too close to exposing the fact that we can control reality also, then they send in these agents. And these agents are sent in, and they're just chaos agents. It's not really there to change reality, or they're just there to disrupt the orthogonal reality that we were going down, right? And, um, and I believe that um, several times in my life, I've had these uh, chaos agents come in uh, right when I was being extremely successful, uh, conveying these messages. And um, I'm not alone. I have no other uh, successful people who know what I know and have also tried to convey these realities uh, to the larger people and have come up against these strange humans that are chaos agents. And they just come in and they wreck the whole place. And so that's kind of what our community is going through right now. Uh, we've been upended, and it's probably my fault. Uh, not only did I create the circumstances which made the outside forces want to send in a chaos agent, um, but I let the guy in the gate. So what could even be worse, right? And so the guy got in the gate and uh, uh, wrecked the whole place. And I mean, literally wrecked the entire place. And apparently it's not over yet. There's a lot more to wreck. Uh, there's this picture of, oh, I don't want to get into that. It's too political. But um, <laughs> thank you. So, <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, um, uh, 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 I wasn't aware of as much of my reality as I should have been. And uh, I was really busy. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't keep all the balls juggling at once. And uh, one slipped through. And um, my God, I wish that had never happened. Because the chaos that has been caused, the duress, I mean, it is unbelievable. If I, I could go on for five hours, the number of people who's had their lives nearly completely destroyed by this whole thing. Good people. And so, um, but, you know, the thing is, is that you live and learn, and now we can never let this happen again. How, how has this affected your, so on the health, in the health front here, how is this affecting you within your dream experience? And um, where are you, where are you with that, with your unconscious or with your, with your deeper self, with your higher self, however you want to view that? How, what's the conversation going on internally? Well, I think, you know, the, um, the toxic nature of the relationship caused me to get cancer, I'm pretty sure of it, uh, in uh, tw uh, January 2018. And I've really been trying to detoxify myself from the entire experience ever since. And um, but what the curious thing is, is, though, is that after I did get sick, the strangest thing happened in that. Um, my daytime life started feeling like a dream and my dream time began feeling like a regular life. So I don't know what to say. I mean, I feel like while I'm awake in this world that I'm in a dream most of the time. And the same thing when I'm in my dreams. I feel I'm in my regular life. 
this weird juxtaposition going on that I can't actually explain, except I like it. I like being kind of in a half dream state. Um, perhaps it's because I'm retired. And I don't have to worry about reality as much as I used to. I don't know. Maybe that's all it is. But um, uh, a lot of people I know that were mystics, they lived their whole life that way. They were always halfway between the worlds, drifting back and forth. And they're getting a lot of trouble sometimes for it because you can't hold a job and, you know, relationships are tough. But they come back with all this really great information that they're the most interesting people you can talk to. So, Yes, definitely. It, it's, uh, I mean, for me, it's, yeah. All I have to say is yes to that. Are you one of those? Yes. You strike me as one of those. <laughs> yes, definitely. Okay. And it just felt like too much hubris to say, yes, here, I'm holding my hand up. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to say yes to that. Uh, so... so. So, Jay, with this, are you having a precognitive, for lack of a better, you know, language is so short. It Language is so powerful, and yet it falls so short. Uh, are you having precognitive stuff that deals with the illness at all? I like saying ill at ease. I don't even like giving it power. Uh, no, I didn't have any idea that I was sick. But then again, I was caught in so much tension that it's understandable in, in retrospect. And I approached my own um, illness in like such a stupid manner. That I'm almost embarrassed, you know, like treating myself with, you know, alternative drugs and things and thinking I was having some kind of effect. And I was clearly much sicker than I was willing to give uh, myself, uh, tell myself. But, uh, yeah, I have uh, definitely have precog abilities now. Um, I'm uh, reticent to go on a trip, and sure as hell, something weird will happen on the trip that I thought I saw before I went. Um, I will take another direction just because I don't want to go in that direction for some reason. I won't go into a restaurant now just because suddenly I don't want to go in that restaurant. And I don't know if I'm avoiding situations. I suspect I am. And um, But then good things are also happening. I'll go in another direction. I'll meet someone I haven't seen in seven or eight years. So, you know, it's uh, it goes both ways. So it's a very protective thing. I talk about it as um, you're in connection with your higher self. And your higher self is the, the window washer on the skyscraper. And he's up there at 90 stories, and he can see the traffic jam three miles away that you can't see down below him. And so he can tell you, don't go that way. There's a traffic jam. Go this other way. The traffic's clear. And so you, once you start talking to your higher self, your higher self, well, first off, they're so damn happy you're talking to him because most people never talk to their <laughs> higher self. Yes. And, third, and then secondly, they just they give you great advice. And uh and tell you what not to do and what not to eat and where to go and how much to sleep. And pretty soon I just kind of feel like I'm um, guided in a way. When, when, the, when the story wraps, so for all of us, because this is, again, that line with the two points. Yep. Uh, when the story wraps, is it so... Uh, of course, I I have views on all this stuff I ask, but I'm wondering what your view is on 
re-entering it from another state and experiencing it, experiencing it as a dream. So the Jay Widener story as a dream from you dreaming it from somewhere else. Um, well, I think uh, sometimes I think that's real, but what I think more like is that I, my physical existence ends, but my story becomes part of the larger plasma field, etheric plasma field. In other words, the Akashic record. And that, so there's like a dream in there of Jay Widener. And when I die, I get to see that dream in reverse. And, um, uh, and then, you know, so those, those, that's the whole reason we're here is to put memories into the larger plasma field. That's why we chose to be here. So that, that's how the plasma field learns through physical experience. Very difficult to learn about physical reality when you're a plasma being. But when you become a physical being and that semi is coming down on you and you have to do something, well, you begin to learn and advance more quickly. And I think that we are the way that ether advances itself more, more quickly. Wasn't it Edgar Casey who um, said that the Akashic record was stored in the Van Allen radiation belts? He did. And yeah. it's very interesting because. Uh, the Van Allen belt looked like a um, toroid. I want to show you something. Hang on. Sure. Looks like a toroid. When I was in, um, when I was in, I've been to Peru many times, and I was with the Quechua uh, shaman up at about thirteen thousand feet. No, make it seventeen thousand feet in the Andes, and he, you know, he really liked me, and he said, um, "I'm going to give you our most precious gift." And I said, "What's that?" And he gave me this. This is the stone. Is that a dropus? It's it's a, it's a. They made the stone. The women fashioned these stones. They sand them down. Mm -hmm. They drill the hole in the center. But it looks just like the Van Allen belt. It's yes. a torus. Yep, yep, yep. It's the fourth, fifth dimensional uh, object, and this is the most sacred object in the Quechua religion. And I think once you understand this, you know how the uh, energy comes up and around and goes back up through in an infinite source right you can understand how galaxies work and planets and and this really helps you understand the plasma universe and i think that's one of the reasons why the uh, inca quechua people are you know so psychic is because they're so in tune with the fields and if you look at their clothing even the patterns on the clothing bright colors are are almost like plasma fields if you look at them closely like they can see the plasma field and we can't yeah, they're they're amazing. I I feel so connected to all of that. It, it's yeah. it's there. You know that immediately struck me as those uh, dropus stones. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Okay. Good. I thought I thought it was, and it's. I'm so grateful that that just came into my field of vision again because I was obsessed with them. Yeah. I'm going back. You're bringing me back to something I needed. I needed that tonight. And I had a synchro with the Quechua because I wrote some software about 10 years ago, and I called it Kizma, which is a, a Quechuan word. Yeah. <laughs> or I think a mother, right? Or pregnant yeah. mother. Yeah. Yes. I wanted my product to be, uh, you know, to birth great things. Yeah, I was with uh, Michael Tellinger one time, and I told him this story about this stone, and he like, 
jaw drops open, right? And he goes, you won't believe this. And he reaches into his bag and he pulls out one of these. He goes, I got this from a South African Zulu shaman. He said it was the most sacred thing in their religion. And I went, what? So here we got two cultures that no way they could have, maybe five, 10,000 years ago, but not recently. Yet they carry the same symbols in their, in their, in their iconic, in their icons that, you know, uh, are actually scientific, you know, proven scientific principles that we know. The, the, the hyperdimensional sphere, I mean, I mean, it's a concept that Einstein talks about, the Van Allen belt. And so what is the Van Allen belt? It's this big, the Earth sits in the middle of this huge electromagnetic radiation, which actually uh, radiation from outer space bounces off the Van Allen belt, protecting the Earth from all this dangerous radiation. And this is the holder, I believe, of all the etheric information that the human race and the Earth create. It's all in there. And it's visible. We can detect it with uh, Geiger counters. That's how we found it. And Ellen threw a Geiger counter through the belt, and it went off, uh, showing the electromagnetic radiation within it. We know that plasma's inner source of power is electromagnetic radiation. Um, once you know it, 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 it just you just can't unknow it. It just makes so much more sense than the the dark energy and you know all the shit they come up with to to explain explain their model. It is, and that is what dark energy is. It's the plasma. And that's why they can't find it, because they're not looking for plasma. If they get a plasma detector in there, they would see that the solar, I mean, the galaxy has this huge amount of plasma all around it. And the rim, little rim of stars is like hardly anything mm -hmm. compared to the other amount of, of plasma energy. And that is where all the etheric bodies and beings live. So you just imagine the galaxy has... Uh, a plasma shield around it that's uh, a million times bigger than the galaxy itself. And in that plasma shield are literally gazillions and gazillions of living creatures. Um, and we don't know it. I think it's echoed to us in the language. And, uh, you know, Crow 777, right? He talks about how space is always, always referred to as a sea. Or, it you is. know, it's sailed upon. And these kind of, this kind of language has always been prevalent. Yeah, it has. And I think that they knew it, and somehow we lost it. I believe we had a, a very advanced ancient civilization that was on Earth for a couple hundred thousand years at least, if not longer, and that a gigantic cataclysm 13,000 years ago, which Graham Hancock talks about in his books, it was so bad, it was a comet strike probably, that nearly wiped everything else, everything out. People in the equator were complaining that it was uh, the food wouldn't grow; it was too cold. And uh, so you can imagine what it would be like up at forty or fifty degrees uh, latitude. Uh, you know, well, of course, we know what it was like. It was twelve thousand feet of ice, like in the Puget Sound area. Uh, the Seattle was buried under six thousand. Twelve thousand years ago, Seattle was buried under six thousand feet of ice. So just imagine that. And imagine how much had to accumulate to get that that high, and that you begin to have a whole lot of respect for the changes that this Earth can go through. It, yeah, indeed. I love that. Are you up here in the Pacific Northwest? I I lived there for years. Now I live in Colorado now, but I I love it up there. I yeah, I do. Too. I left it twice and came back because I uh, love it so much. same here. Actually, I left it twice and came back and. 
but now I'm in Southern Colorado and I'm loving it. So uh, one thing you sparked earlier was the African women, the walking and sing song. I love that it, it ties into all yeah. this so much yeah. and it doesn't get enough airtime I think nowadays. It seems like the, the Australian Aboriginals and other stories get a lot of airtime, but sing song doesn't for whatever reason, no. ever, it ties in. Yeah, I mean, it's like once you get all of this, it becomes much easier. For instance, Robert Lawler told me about he was traveling with the tribe of Aborigines and they get very excited as they approach this kind of reddish looking rock that was sticking out of the ground about 12 feet, it was about six feet wide, you know, very prominent sticking out of the middle of the outback. And they, a whole tribe got very excited and Robert Carr sort of mystified by what was going on, it was sunset, and they started a fire, and they did all these dancing rituals around this rock, and went on till like two in the morning, and then they all collapsed, completely exhausted. And uh, Robert, like trying to figure out what's going on, finally goes to bed, and he wakes up the next day, and everybody's up, you know, before he's up, and they're all chattering with each other. And they're saying, did you see that being with the green face? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was trying to tell me, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And then, well, what about that other thing? Did you see that house that had the pink roof? Yeah, 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 with the orange-headed people in it. And Robert's like, what are you guys talking about? And uh, the shaman said, oh, see, this rock is associated with one of the stars in the Taurus uh, uh, constellation. And so whenever we come here, we do our rituals. And then when we dream, we all travel together to that star. And experience it, and they all have the same memory. It's amazing, and it's it's and it's stuff like this, and there's so much of this uh, throughout the historical context and records and and uh, oral traditions and all this, and yet we're so tied down now. The collective, not not all of us, but I mean, this is the collective out here, especially in the West, the Western world, with these hard ideas, uh, this hard kind of crusty, flaky ideas of reality, yet the more you flake at it, the more flakes there are, and um, in, in, the magic's gone, they, and that's what I'm trying to, I wonder, what do you think is going on with the controlling factors that are creating such an ugly set of stories, an ugly narrative around the collective right now? Well, I ask myself that question all the time. As an artist, um, I watch as art, you know, slowly spirals downwards, and I have to ask myself, what happened to us? How come there's no box anymore? How come there's no Leonardo's? Where do they all go? What happened? And it seems to me that there's a force, maybe malignant spiritual force, maybe it's a human force, and they don't want us to feel good about ourselves. So they've uglified everything. And so everything becomes ugly. And artists are no longer taught that your job is to make the world a better place, a more beautiful place, a more enlightened place. Now artists are taught, oh, you know, you can put a chair on a stage and call it nuclear sunset number 23, and everyone will think you're a genius, right? And so there's no talent anymore. The music doesn't have much talent. There's good music, I don't want to say that. But the music that they are pushing, 
the top, there isn't a whole lot of talent behind it. And so we're moving into a place where um, I think some very evil forces are manipulating reality and they're doing it for their own personal benefit. And um, one of the things that has to come from this manipulation is a feeling of that we are um, drab and we're not great creatures and that we're just a nothing, just a, a mongrel society of nothings that will never be anything. There is no afterlife. There, you can never be great. You can never achieve anything. And they seem to be putting it into us. You're a victim. Everything You can't do anything. You know, and all you people out there who are reveling in your victimhood, you're, oh, I'm a woman, I'm a victim, I'm a, a minority, I'm a handicapped person, whatever. Just remember, that's what they want you to be because victims always lose. You have two people that are playing tennis and they're of equal stature, but one guy, guy A, he thinks he's the greatest in the world. He's going to practice every day. He's going to watch video of you playing. And every time he sees you, you go, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. And you're walking around going, I don't have a good enough parents. My genes aren't good enough. I'm just not good enough. I'm a victim. I guarantee you're going to lose. So they want you to have that losing attitude in your head. So they're trying to create an entire society of victims. And uh, you cannot allow yourself to be a victim. My Zen master in, in my late 20s, he was a Korean guy, had his thick accent, and he used to always say, no, 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 there are no victims. And, you know, first I was like, what? There's victims? There's, you know, children grow in bad households. And, you know, people get caught in fires and bad accidents. And there are victims. And he was talking not on that level, talking on the level of karma, that everybody gets what they're going to get eventually. And... Um, so you shouldn't revel in your victimhood. And that's where we are right now as a society. Everybody's reveling in their victimhood. And every time you do that, you make yourself weaker. I, I, I cannot agree with you enough. And I've come up saying this a lot. I'm, I've gone through some hor horrific stuff. And not one time, not once in my life, as back as far as I can recall, did I ever perceive myself as a victim ever it never came to me i've never never embellished that i never wanted to beat it it just was it felt like a, a ill-fitting glove to even think of myself in bad situations as a victim and this brings in that whole idea of lucidity to me right you know who's playing this i'm playing right it's like uh, being told you're bad and that you're never going to be good is just as good as is just as bad as being told that you're not good enough and you've got to keep trying, right? It's like these are both negative positions which you just don't want anything to do with because that's not what it's about. It's not really about bad or good. It's about how you're reacting in each situation and the decisions that you make in that situation. And even if you make a bad decision, are you going to make that same bad decision next time? And, and if you're an advanced human being, no, you're not. And if you're a, a compassionate human being, you're going to look at your fellow person when they're making that same mistake and say, listen, dude, I've been there. I've done that. You really don't want to jump off that cliff, right? 
And uh, so you need to say it even if they listen to you. Even if they give you the finger and say, oh, get out of my life and quit bothering me. At least you did it, right? Yes. Yes. You tried. And you go on. You don't judge them either. Judging is, well, I'll tell you what. Once I got cancer, uh, I decided I'm not judging anybody ever again. Yeah. So there's a kind judging, of, you know, yeah, judging's poor sportsmanship. And it, and it, yeah. it always comes down to that idea of talking about people rather than ideas for me with with that judging it's uh it's a very first indicator in the level of the person speaking i certainly look for it when i'm talking to people yeah it's it's real tricky it's it's tricky waters and so that's another idea here is in the in this kind of ugly reality we're all we're seeing it those of us who see are seeing it and we're seeing how it's engineered for us and and you know some of us are just caught in it saying there's uh there's different perspective here take a step back (laughs) you know at the end though how do you see yourself so with this process of facing an endpoint whether you transcend and whatever happens in the process but just being confronted with it jay being having a confrontation with your endpoint the knowledge of it where where does that set your your point of reference where is your mind your magical eye at this point well, it was very interesting because I went to the hospital at about one in the afternoon. I went to the emergency ward. They did an MRI, came back and told me I had to go have surgery, major surgery. And um, and my wife is there, and she's like, you know, completely freaking out. And I, I totally understand. And um, I'm laying in the thing, and they're about to give me the uh, anesthesia to put me in down so I can go get operated. Uh, and I, I, I started. You know, saying some of the oddest things ever in my life. I said, um, "Hey, honey, um, I accidentally forgot to tell you I got a life insurance plan out at work for sixty-five thousand dollars. Make sure you, you cash that in. Don't let them get away with it. Um, we just bought the new Jeep, but Jeeps have a great resale value, so you're going to be able to get almost all the money we put into that Jeep right back. Don't worry about it." Um, I, I put $30,000 in the secret place and I told her where it was and I started telling her all and she's just freaking out because I sound like I'm ready to kick the bucket and I'm giving her all the last things I have to say to her, but I was completely calm and ready. And I realized that was all I had to do. And then when, um, when I came back, I realized that my time was limited and that I wanted to accomplish a few things before I left. I have no fear of death. I have fear of suffering and I did suffer quite a bit. I really don't want to suffer ever again, but I will suffer if I have to. But in the end, I got this feeling that with all the trouble that I've been through in my life, that when I die, I'm going to go up into this realm and there's going to be this about 30 angels in a circle, and they're all going to give me a standing ovation. They go, I don't know how you put up with all of that crap. That's kind of what I think. <laughs> right. And I get, you know, Jay, in line with your with everything around you, it feels like a movie viewing room, right? The pre yeah, <laughs> I always thought of my life like a movie. 
Yeah, me too. It, like I said, with that time is a tape thing, that's the only thing that time has ever made sense to me as. It's just this tape. Yep. And, and, and you know, of course, we know that's the Akashic record. Yep. Uh, but uh, people can understand the, the symbol of a tape rather than Akashic record. Some people are like, what's that? <laughs> yep. No, no, that's exactly right. If life's you know, a movie, I'm, I'm, I'm a fluffer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> an important job <laughs> somebody else yeah. absolutely important job you gotta warm the boys up <laughs> that that is uh a beautiful way to to see it it's certainly in line with with how i'm feeling and you i gotta say there's this give me the chills you've given me the chills several times tonight and i like that i look for that in in people that can kind of reach through the ether and well, the and chills are the uh the chills are the electrical vibration from the plasma that's we're, we're transmitting between us yes absolutely again that's spooky <laughs> exactly right <laughs> So I was wondering with that though, if Jerry had, because I know that we're keeping, I think you said you needed the two hours. So if he had question. Yeah. Um, Persian scribe wants to know your thoughts on JK Rowling's writing. Uh, okay. So I was, uh, one of the probably world's top students of Fulcanelli for years. Again, for that rich guy who gave me Fulcanelli's book. Fulcanelli being an alchemist who lived in the 1920s and wrote a great book about alchemy called Mystery of the Cathedrals. And when I went to go see the very first Harry Potter movie, because I never read the books, uh, I had no idea what they were about, anything. I was not in that world. Um, but I like movies. So I went to go see it. And, um, and as I'm watching that first movie, I'm realizing that actually this is a story from a play. Um, what happened is, is that Fulcanelli had a student named Jean Cancellier, and when he left this world in 1929, Cancellier was only about maybe 25 years old at the time. And in 1951, Eugene Cancellier, so he's in his, what, maybe his 50s now? He received a letter written by an aristocrat, aristocratic writing, with a seal behind it, just like Harry does in the movie. And he opens it up, and it tells him to go to the Seville train station and train. Uh, in, in Spain, and Harry goes to a train station. Uh, the only difference is between the movie and the and the real story of Cancellet is that Cancellet goes to the train station, picked up by a car, and taken into the Pyrenees. He's blindfolded, taken into the Pyrenees, where he's brought to a castle where everybody's dressed up in medieval lore, and they're learning alchemy and magic. And there's children there, and, and it's the entire Harry Potter milieu, only it's in a story that was written in 1952, which I read in probably 1971, first time, right? So J.K. Rowling had obviously studied Fulcanelli and the whole thing and knew the story and based her entire best-selling series on this work of alchemy. Uh-huh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That that also kind of shoots down the whole I was a homeless alley dweller. Yeah. <laughs> which I've never really believed, but just no. other than that, um, I think the stories are, are it's well written. I think we were we were discussing in chat about how 
how it, it's, you can't put those books down once you start reading them. They just suck you in. And the language and the way it's structured is just perfect. It's all perfect. It's amazing. I'll go on a limb and say that she is the result of some kind of white light alchemical uh, society. And they're giving her the ideas and telling her, here you go. Put this out. We need to hear it right now. And that's what we're getting. Because the landscape that she paints is actually very close to the real landscape. Reminds me of the Brotherhood of Light, ZZ Zane stuff. Yeah, great and stuff. in line with all that. Yeah, I've I've read all those books behind me. Yes, as have I. I figured you had. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with that mask? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> My eyes by chat mask. Yes. <laughs> what? What? Uh, so, is, was that the only question we had? Yeah. People Jeez. are just in awe. I could take Jay. Jay, I could talk to you for hours and hours and when, hours. Uh, we have, <laughs> Yvonne wants to know when your birthday is. Um, 42553. Ooh, I'm 426. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Well, you can't tell me that's right. Yeah, you're a woman. Um, Young man, please. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that is, by the way, the day that uh, Crick and Watson announced their findings on DNA. Mm. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> well, I still have affinity for that. You know what's funny, Jay, is I have never. This has been a problem throughout my life. Uh, as a as a baby, it was always my problem. Is this idea of of? I mean, we talked about it all through the show. Time, and so I've never been able to. I have I. So as far as timing events and stuff, I show up on time when I need to. And I, I, I pay attention to the immediacy of the day of stuff I have to do. Outside of that, though, I don't remember how old I am half the time. People remind me. Uh, this concept is foreign to my essence. And I know that may sound fluffy or white lightish, and I'm really I'm not white lightish. So it's just that it's such a construct, and I feel like such an immortal. My, you know, because I don't believe we die, right? We don't die; we transmute. We're energy. <laughs> we just had uh, Christine Northrup on Reality Check, and uh, she's great. And she's I, th- I think she's around my age. She looks great, and she. Uh, I don't think about aging. I never think about any of that stuff. And I don't either. I was like, why waste time about that stuff? I agree, but work literally the construct around us is is it seems to be focused on it. Everywhere I look, there are people fighting what they consider as aging and then uh you, you know, just like accepting it again. Uh, my symbols for beauty have never been what is milled out to me and I've always appreciated I've always been drawn to the witchy elder that looks a million years old <laughs> that's like my image of of beauty yeah I mean yeah it's all of the beholder so yeah I like you know I I told uh I told Sharon early on like 30 years ago I said if you ever get a facelift I'm leaving you so <laughs> Yes. Uh, you not want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's I will I told myself when I first saw like how Faye Dunaway was gone when I first started seeing it in person, right? Because it looks way different. 
And I was horrified. These, these they look like masks. They look like yeah. a scary masks. What's her name? Diaz. What's her name? Uh, Cameron. Oh my God. I saw her in a movie. Uh, she had some very sad work done on her. It's uh, it says it, it says everything you need to know, sadly, but it's also this getting really tied up in lost and t- lost in this this whatever this reality is. It is the complete utter breakdown of your spiritual component to be this type of it. Yeah, they they want you to feel old and you know get get out of here. You're dead. You're almost dead now and. They want you to think you're sick all the time, and yes, uh, and then it, it, just like you were saying earlier, people get people w- start wearing these attachments. They start saying, yep. "I'm this kind of victim. I'm this. I'm that." But, instead but, of <laughs> moving but, out of that, but that continue by putting energy into that, you're creating a thought form that manifests that it, around you. That's it's, right. People would call right. them attachments or you know, tulpas or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I got a yeah. question. Got a question. Oh, cool. Um, it's two part. Are you going to interview Jay Dyer on reality check? I'd like to, if, if he says yes. Okay. And did his Gnostic views, did your Gnostic views and Dyer's Eastern Orthodox views lead to long conversations while working together? Yeah, actually, we had some pretty amazing conversations, I must okay. say. But we had to go way far away from everybody because if you were listening in, <laughs> probably you think we were super subversive, which maybe we are. Huh? Well, according to the mainstream. That. That's about it. That's all I got here. All right. Well, yep, go ahead. Yeah, I just I thank you, Jay. This was very uh, enriching and definitely so. You know, I felt it at the soul level. So thank you for being candid and raw with us. You bet. Thanks for having me. You brought light. Definitely our pleasure. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. And next week we have a surprise guest because one of the two, oh wait, too late for questions now. Yes, they're going to interview Walter Bosley. Yeah, you guys are going to get Walter Bosley. That was a question. Next week's a surprise guest. I don't know who it is. Oh, he left. Bye, Jay. All he right. said two hours. I know, I know. I didn't want to keep. <laughs> anyway, next week I've got. We have it. Someone scheduled who hasn't responded, so I've got a backup. So I don't know who it is. So it's a surprise. And then in two weeks we have a new show starting, the Obelisk. So sure, be sure to uh, check that out. That'd be a good time. Thank All you, right. everyone. Thanks. It's all that's there. <laughs>